Are you operating according to God-glorifying optimism or self-defeating pessimism? If I only had this kind of husband, then I could be a better servant of God. If I only had this job, I I could be a better servant of God. If I only went to that church or I lived over there, I could really be a servant of God. They would use me over there. They're not using me here. Only the gospel itself produces a heart of gratitude. Gratitude fuels service to make you content wherever God has placed you and it forces you out of a grateful heart to find things to do that you never thought your hands would find to do, whether other people notice it or not. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles this morning and uh, be turning with me to the book of Romans. We began a study in uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans um, last week, and uh, this will be the second installment of our series in Romans. And this morning, I want us to look together at verses 8 through 13. The title of the message, Ministry Matters. I guess you could say that one of two ways, Ministry Matters or Ministry Matters. And uh, both of those ways will be the way in which we approach this subject. Please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's word, picking up in verse number 8. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of Gentiles. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to his holy word and let us ask the Lord for his help as we study this text together. Father, to your word now we turn, to your truth now we embrace, and to our selfishness we now let go. As you train us in your holy scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit, to be holy vessels of service for your glory from what we learn in verses 8 through 13. Bless our time, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. What does a heart in service to God look like? Jesus said, Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. It was Thomas Aquinas who said on that verse that God looks more to the pious mind of the giver than to the abundance of the thing given. But Jesus also said, 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. There are other places in the Bible, obviously, that speak about our service to God being recognized. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. But a poem reminds us of God's ever-watching eye of our service. They said the Master is coming to honor the town today, and none can tell at what house or home the Master will choose to stay. And I thought while my heart beat wildly, what if he should come to mine? How would I strive to entertain and honor the guest divine? And straight I turned to toiling to make my home more neat. I swept and polished and garnished and decked it with blossoms sweet. I was troubled for fear the master might come ere my work was done. And I hasted and worked the faster and watched the hurrying sun. But right in the middle of my duties a woman came to my door. She had come to tell her sorrows and my comfort and aid to implore. And I said, I cannot listen nor help you any today. I have greater things to attend to. And the pleader turned away. It is that subject of service that we want to turn our attention to as we look at this text and really to begin with sort of a a technical comment about Greek letters. Greek letters in the first century always began with a thanksgiving followed by a prayer to the gods. And it's interesting that Paul adapts that here in verse 8. He Christianizes even first century letter writing. It was true on Paul's part that he had a desire for the glory of the Lord to be shouted from the mountaintops and for the world itself to be Christianized with the gospel. And so even as he takes his pen in his hand, he Christianizes this Greek way of writing. And it's really a prayer in verse 8. And really the prayer began all the way in verse 7 when he said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're familiar with that from Numbers chapter 6. That's Aaron's blessing on the people, a benediction, really a prayer that Yahweh would be gracious to his people and would give them peace. And so this is the way that Paul opens his letter after his salutation. He launches into a prayer of thanksgiving for the recipients of this letter, which are the Romans who reside in the capital city of Rome. In verse 8, Paul thanks God for this worldwide knowledge of the Romans' faith, which was really a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, promised beforehand in the Old Testament, as he mentioned in verse 2. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul mentions the constant prayer. He prays to God that he might visit them. He longed for that. And in verses 11 through 13, he gives the reason why. Because he wanted to come and strengthen them so that both he and the Romans would be mutually encouraged. So in the opening verses of his letter, Paul therefore wants them to see his heart before he fully reveals his theology. You see, it is the purity of the gospel as well as the integrity of his life that he lives, that he must reveal to the Romans if he expects them, as I said last week, to support him in his desire to go to Spain, to support him 
financially in this mission trip to Spain that he was planning. And so Paul in verses 8 through 13 tells them of his sincere motives, not just to secure fundraising for his mission to Spain, but also his desire, his long desire for years to come and visit these Romans. It's just that God had prevented it until this time. He's pouring out his pastoral heart, and it's very clear, beloved, that we can see he possessed a genuine care for these Romans, a genuine love, genuine motives in both caring and loving them. This was Paul's heart. I ask you this morning, has your desire to serve others grown cold? In your service, are you motivated by inward purity to care and to minister to others? Or are you motivated by outward popularity to promote yourself or your agenda? These are important questions, and Scripture speaks about them very frankly and very straightforwardly. Paul said in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And Jesus addressed the hypocrisy and selfish ambition of the Pharisees of his own day, confronting them because of their many religious rituals that they conducted, as Jesus said, so that they may be seen by others. And Jesus, in effect, said, don't do that. Those motives are wrong. Rather, trust God, because what you do may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in heaven and who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, Matthew 6, 18. You see, our passage strongly implies that the Romans wondered why it was taking Paul so long to visit them. They were absolutely craving his apostolic attention and ministry. But Paul had a lot of ministry matters on his plate that the Romans weren't even aware of. Paul was serving God with a full heart, with full devotion. And you know there's a practical point here. Sometimes we, the Apostle Paul not excluded, may be tempted to self-pity or resentment when our service in the name of Christ isn't appreciated and that might discourage us or maybe even when our service to Christ is never noticed. But God in heaven notices and Paul knew that. He trusted in the words of Jesus. Paul's ability to persevere in the midst of misunderstanding, in the midst of criticism, even in the midst of persecution, was an ability to keep his motives pure because he conducted ministry with a clean conscience. Paul did not play to the grandstands. Paul did not play into flattery or into people sugaring him up. In fact, MacArthur says this, Paul was greatly used of the Lord because by God's grace and provision, he always kept his motives pure. His single purpose was to please God. The displeasure or disregard of other people, even those he was serving, could not deter his work or lead him into bitterness or self-pity. Paul, therefore, unveils his heart to these Romans because he had never visited them and they are wondering why he is dragging his feet with the issues they are facing, why has he not come to Rome? And MacArthur goes on to say, the letter to Rome reveals Paul not only had the zeal of a prophet, the mind of a teacher, the determination of an apostle, but the heart of a shepherd, of a pastor, highlighted there in verse 9, whom I serve, Paul says, speaking about God, with my spirit, that is, with my heart, with pure motives. And Paul wants them to understand, if you're ever going to understand me, you have to understand I am motivated by that single desire. 
I will have a clean conscience before God. I will live to His glory. I will do my best to honor Him. And sometimes that might mean dishonoring you. It might mean there's some misunderstanding. I'm okay with that. I have to have the skin of a rhinoceros because I want to glorify God. He was no longer a self-serving, self-righteous Pharisee, right? Philippians chapter 3. He didn't have ulterior motives and self-glory. The gospel had absolutely changed his entire ambition and outlook on life, pointing in the direction of God's glory. There's much we can learn from this passage. Ministry matters. And because ministry matters to every Christian, we need to consider the ministry matters that spurred on Paul's service to the Lord. We know from Ephesians 4 that all ministry is for the building up of those in the faith. We know that. And as we study this passage, we need to ask ourselves some important questions. Number one, am I serving anywhere? Number two, how am I serving? Is it with pure motives in accordance with God's will? And number three, how can I be a better servant to the glory of Jesus Christ? So in these verses, verses 8 through 13, Paul reveals four matters to be considered when desiring to serve God and others sincerely and effectively. Four matters to be considered when desiring to serve God and others sincerely and effectively, such as a matter, number one, of what we might call appreciation, number two, supplication, number three, intention, and number four, execution. So let's look at these in their turn this morning. Number one, Paul says there is a matter of ministry to consider and it's appreciation, that is praise of God. We see this in verse 8. As Paul writes to a church he has never visited, notice he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul had not met most of them. He did know a handful of them because he sends greetings to them at the end of the letter. But most of them he didn't know and yet here he thanks God for these saints. He didn't view God as merely a theological abstraction, but this was a true friendship to the Apostle Paul. I think my God, he says. That's similar to what he said in Acts 27, to God to whom I belong and whom I worship. In other words, Paul's saying, I am God's and he is mine. Jeremiah 30, verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Or as James says, speaking about Abraham, and Paul will actually say later in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Paul viewed his relationship with God as that of a friendship. And here is gratitude and appreciation overflows to God as friend for these saints that He didn't even really know all of you, I think, God, rooted in an appreciation of God's grace and enabling them to believe. God was to be praised, so he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ came the blessings they had by faith, and therefore through Jesus Christ, Paul's thanksgiving must return. Open Lord, my eyes and my mouth will declare your praise. Psalm 50, verse 15. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him, that is through Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. You understand at the very beginning of this that Paul's motive for service was not people-centered. Now, he was appreciative of these saints. 
but his motive is an appreciation to God for them and for the faith or belief he saw in their lives. And so Paul gave the glory to God the Father through the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who secured the Roman salvation, granted them the ability to believe, and their faith was evidence of that. Paul goes on to say, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, there's a reputation of you glorifying God's name in the world. In the capital city of Rome, they had this reputation and it had made the rounds that there were faithful saints in Rome. And Paul says, notice, in all the world. This is a literary hyperbole. Paul's known world of the day would have included Rome as the city, but also the Roman Empire and even beyond that. And so the news that people in the pagan capital of Rome had bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ was surely something that would catch the headlines. They had a well-known reputation of serving and loving God their faith. Paul, for his part, First heard about Christians when Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome in A.D. 49. Uh, We read in history they were expelled from Rome, these Jewish Christians, because of a certain man by the name of Crestus, which we believe is a variant spelling of the name Christ. So Jewish Christians were expelled. Two of those were Priscilla and Aquila, who probably had been in the Roman church from the ground up, and they were expelled, and Paul ran into them on his missionary journeys, and so he was aware of their reputation of faith, these Roman Christians. By the way, Paul himself would speak, in connection with Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and session at the Father's right hand of this knowledge of God and Christians' faith in the world, he speaks about the hope of the gospel that the Colossians heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, I, became a minister. Indeed, the magnitude of the gospel's impact in the first century alone could not be exaggerated. It was an impact on the world. Acts 17.6, these men, speaking of Christians, have turned our world upside down. By the end of the apostolic era, there were half a million Christians and counting. That was an extraordinary number of Christians for that time period in human history. And that more than just Rome was in mind comes out in other places in Scripture, Colossians 1, 5, and 6, the word of truth, the gospel, has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Or 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The faith of these Christians in Rome. Paul expresses praise of God, appreciation for the faith that God gave them. His praise is vertical. His appreciation, therefore, is also horizontal for these saints. Now, the fact that Paul gives praise to God reveals his appreciation or gratitude for believers that he didn't even know. This really, I think, presses home for us the importance of what motivates our service. Christian service begins, let me just put it to you simply, with a heart of thankfulness, a heart of praise, a heart of worship to God for those God has placed in your life. 
And Paul's ministry to the far-off Romans didn't mean he was off the hook regarding those right in front of them. In fact, in our passages, we're going to see in verse 13, he makes it clear as to why he was putting off his visit to Rome. It's because he had other ministry matters and opportunities God had placed before him. But I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. Immature Christians fail to be hopeful as the Apostle Paul is here. They fail to be optimistic regarding what God is doing right in front of them in their home, in their marriage, in their community, in their church. They have a tendency to look far off as if the pasture is greener on the other side. And with that sort of mentality, it's the mindset that says, if God just would change my circumstances, I'd better be able to serve Him. But these same Christians will always market be discontent with their job, with their wife, with their kids, with their family, with their friends, with their church. God's not the problem. You're the problem if you're discontent and can't find a place to serve. And because they're discontent, they lack gratitude. They've taken their eye off the ball. They've lost focus regarding the many opportunities God has given them. Discontentedness always leads to resentfulness and neither discontentedness nor resentfulness can ever produce gratefulness. But for Paul, it was different. He had a thankful heart and a thankful heart rose from any ashes of self-pity he may have been tempted to feel. Do you realize that as Paul wrote to the Romans from Corinth, there were Jews, Acts chapter 20 tells us, that were plotting to take his life. And that's why he only stayed three months in Corinth, there in southern Greece. And of course you had the Corinthians, who he was staying with, who were criticizing him for his ministry effectiveness, that oh, his bodily presence is weak, his speech is of no account. The Corinthians and the Romans were criticizing Paul. I think the Romans wondered why he hadn't taken the time to visit them. But the Corinthians and the Romans, to the degree that they had these thoughts about Paul, only revealed their self-focused and bitter spirits. But Paul was able to overcome all sorts of bitterness and resentment in his own heart because he was overwhelmed with appreciation for what God was doing in the world and the lives of the believers he knew and the lives of the believers he didn't knew. There was never an opportunity to say there's no place for me to serve according to the Apostle Paul. He was ever grateful. And he had that sort of attitude of gratitude which allowed him to operate, I think, according to this principle vocalized here in verse 8. And you've heard it before. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Paul is saying, look, I am grateful, I am appreciative to God for him giving you faith, and therefore I want to serve you. He's exposing his pastoral heart before he goes into the theology to say, understand my motives. I would have come to you sooner. God didn't allow it, and I'm going to follow God's will. But I am appreciative and grateful for what God is doing in your lives. Paul had a robust Hope and optimism and the advancement of God's kingdom. Not in some far off place, but in his own life right in front of him. So the Romans could wait. But I would ask you this morning, what is your level of appreciation? Are you looking, or excuse me, are you operating according to God glorifying optimism or self-defeating pessimism? If I only had this kind of husband then I could be a better servant of God. If I only had this job, I I could be a better servant of God. If I only went to that church or I lived over there, I could really be a servant of God. They would use me over there. They're not using me here. 
Only the gospel itself produces a heart of gratitude. Gratitude fuels service to make you content wherever God has placed you and it forces you out of a grateful heart to find things to do that you never thought your hands would find to do, whether other people notice it or not. And I think that's the essence of what Paul is saying here. But there's a second matter of ministry to consider. If we desire to serve God sincerely and effectively, not only the matter of appreciation, that is praise of God, but number two, supplication, that is prayer to God. Paul wants these Romans to know he has prayed about ministry opportunity among them. And we can learn from this. Verse 9, notice your Bibles. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul points both to his ministry of prayer and his ministry of preaching to say, this is on the forefront of my mind. I'm not dragging my feet and coming to visit you. On the contrary, you are a constant matter of prayer. In fact, Calvin says in his commentary that Paul's anxiety and his ardent desire were certain evidences of his love for them. That is why Paul said, I have the burden daily of the churches upon me. Paul felt like he was a father of hundreds of children, burdened and anxious for their Christian lives. And so to prove the sincerity of his desire to visit them, he appeals to God, notice this, by taking an oath. He says in verse 9, for God is my witness. Now that might sound extreme that he would swear in God's name, but it's only even more extreme when you consider the fact this isn't the only time the Apostle Paul does this. He does it in 2 Corinthians 1, I call God to witness against me. That the reason that I spared you was because God prevented me from coming to you. God is my witness against me. Or he said to the Thessalonians, he said, for we never came with with, uh, words of flattery as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. God is witness. Or to the Galatians, and what I am writing to you before God, before God, I do not lie. So he shows us here, I think, that oath-taking and vows are not in and of themselves sinful. Now, obviously, Jesus and James speaks to this issue, and so false oath-taking or profane oaths or vows are sinful. But it's likely Paul resorts to swearing an oath, calling on God as an alibi or a witness, because those in the Roman church were criticizing him because they felt slighted that he hadn't visited them yet. I mean, what exactly is Paul doing? We are the Christians of the capital city of Rome. Why isn't the great apostle Paul coming to us? And Paul, in effect, is saying, I swear to you in the name of God Almighty that I do not view ministry casually. I'm a servant of the gospel. I pray for you regularly that if it be God's will, I can run to you and minister to your needs. That's the essence of what Paul is saying. He invokes God in an oath because it was necessary to defend his integrity. Listen to what Calvin says. Calvin says, and I quote, It was not Christ's design, as the superstitious Anabaptists dream, to abolish oaths altogether, but on the contrary, to call attention to the due observance of the law. And the law, allowing an oath, only condemns perjury and needless swearing. If then we would use an oath aright, let us imitate the seriousness and the reverent manner in which the Apostle Paul uses an oath or a vow. 
And if you'd like to brush up more on this, this Lord's Day afternoon, you can read the Westminster Confession of Faith and the chapter entitled, Lawful Oaths and Vows. They're biblical. But I want you to note the language used to highlight his ministry for God. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Now, the gospel of his Son refers back to what Paul already established, namely his call to apostleship. Skip back up to verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So, gospel of God, verse 1. Verse 9, the gospel of his son. So, let me put it to you this way. It was Paul's gospel to preach in the sense that he was commissioned to do it, but it was not his gospel as if he held copyright to it. And so Paul wants to repeat himself here. He's saying this is the gospel of God's Son. It was the gospel God planned, God the Father. It was the gospel that God the Son executed by dying on the cross. God owned the content. God owned the concept. And therefore, God owns the copyright. And he was clear about that in verse 1. He is just a slave of Christ. And now he says it here again in verse 9. God is whom I serve with my spirit. Now, we oftentimes today say, I devoted myself to such and such with all my heart. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. His spirit, it's not the Holy Spirit he's referring to, but the spirit of the inner man, his heart. He's saying that I'm sincere in my service to God. Calvin says, to quote him again, Paul testifies that he from the heart served God. And if you've ever seen Paul's logo, it's, the, it's a picture of a hand holding a heart on fire for God devotion to God this is what Paul's saying he's saying that as a messenger of the good news of the gospel he wanted to fulfill every delivery or errand on which God sent him he was an apostle of the gospel of his son now that word gospel translates into good news it was a common term in the first century actually to describe any news the announcement of any message In ancient times, for example, when soldiers went into battle, people waited anxiously for a battlefield report to know how things were going. There were no radios. There were no satellites to see images of the battlefield. So once the outcome of the battle was settled, runners ran back to give the report. You're familiar with Isaiah's words, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Well, a watchman in the watchtower would look far into the distance, and when his eye caught the runner, he could see dust rising as the runner sped back to the city to give the battlefield report. But history tells us that these watchmen were trained. They knew what report was going to come back, whether the battle was being won or lost, based on the running form of the runner. And if the runner was dragging his feet with his head down, then the watchman knew this is bad news. It's going to be a grim report. But if he had good form and his head was up straight and dust was kicking up all around, he knew it was good news. Good news was coming. Now, in effect, listen to this. Paul is telling the Romans in verse 9 that he's not dragging his feet. The battle is fierce. Ministry is challenging. But the victory in Christ is sure. He's running as fast as his feet will allow him to get to Rome and as far as God will allow him to go. And according to his timetable. So, in verse 9, going on into verse 10, Paul says, 
I want you to know that without ceasing, I mention you. Notice the beginning of verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I mean, this is really beautiful. I don't want you to miss this because Paul gives the details of his private devotional life. He's resuming his thought at the end of verse 9 that God is his witness, not only according to his desire to preach, but now according to his prayers, that wherever Paul is in his prayer life, he always thought of the Romans. And he says here in verse 9, this seemed to happen, and I quote, without ceasing and always, that his supplication to God was that if God's will permitted it, that he would be able to visit them. To put it simply, Paul is saying to the Romans that they had a page dedicated to them in his prayer journal. But he would not run one step beyond God's will. And that's his emphasis there. God's will. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He would only come in the way and at the time God chose. And the reason for this is simple. Verse 1, he was a slave of Christ. Verse 9, God whom I serve in my spirit. God had ordered his steps from before Damascus and after Damascus. He would not divert from God's spiritual map, no matter what sort of undue pressure was put upon him. Now at this point, I hope you can see there's a connection between Paul's gratitude to God and his supplication to God that then led him to want to serve God. Turn with me just for a moment to Romans chapter 12, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And I used to write Romans 12, 1 and 2 after my name when I signed my signature because it was kind of like my life verses. Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore. Now, understand... This is the beginning of the practical section of Romans, chapters 12 through 16. Chapters 1 through 11 is the theological part. So after getting to the end of that, Paul says, Therefore, on the basis of all God has granted us by His grace through the gospel in Christ, now I'm going to tell you how you live your life. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's interesting phraseology, spiritual worship. Back in Romans 1, Paul is using the language of verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit. The Greek word serve is latruo. It's a term used denoting religious worship, like that described in Romans 12, we use the term liturgy all the time to describe the order of worship, but latruo also refers to the service of worship or to the performance of what we could call religious duties. Paul served God with an inward sincerity of worship. Any service rendered to others would be an overflow of his service to God. And so Paul's worship to God And his service to God cannot be disattached. His worship was an act of service. His service was an act of worship in the likes of Romans 12, 1 and 2 to be a living sacrifice to God. To spiritually serve and worship God with all of his being and all of his life. And so in his Rolodex, to use an old term, there were cards in there 
that had more than just the names of the Romans on there. And so Paul's saying, don't think that I don't want to minister to you. I'm a living sacrifice. I've committed my life to the gospel. In 2 Timothy 1.3, Paul actually says, I serve God with a clean conscience. I have ministerial priorities that I'm pursuing, and I'm bathing it all in prayer so that I can serve effectively. Just remember this adage, beloved. The prayer that gets to heaven is the prayer that starts in heaven. In other words, if you want to do God's will, you need to pray for God's will and not try to get God to conform to your will. If a ministry or service opportunity is God's will, He'll make it clear, He'll provide the opportunity. What God says to you is more important than what you say to God. Don't give Him the instructions, just report to duty. And then you can pray, Lord, make me willing to be made willing. Paul bathed everything in prayer. Now, Paul wasn't in the wrong. He wasn't dragging his feet. And he tells the Romans this. He actually swears in God's name. I'm operating from sincerity and a clean conscience. But since ministry matters, there are several matters to consider if we want to serve God sincerely and effectively. Number one is the matter of appreciation. That's praise of God. That's the fuel for all service. Number two is supplication. That is prayer to God. If you want to honor God and do His will, you need to pray. God not only ordains the end, but He ordains the means to the end, which includes prayer. We are meticulous in our understanding of God's sovereignty. But number three, intention. Purpose for God. Like Paul, we need to be intentional in our service of any kind, making sure that it's in accord with the purposes of God. So fulfilling the purpose of God or for God in our service has two intentions. One is obvious, one is surprising. One is a well-intended service to others, verse 11, but the second one is a well-intended service from others. It's amazing to me that the Apostle Paul says, if you want to be a servant of God, you've got to be willing to serve, but you also have to be willing to be served. This is a two-way street. Notice, first of all, verse 11, a well-intended service to others for God. Paul says, for, that's continuing his thoughts, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. This is Paul's reason for coming. Now, he states it in three different ways. Here in verse 11, he says, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That's really vague. Verse 13 is a little clearer. He says he wants to reap some harvest among them. So we know it's associated with the harvest of the gospel. And then verse 15, he's even more clear. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. So obviously this is connected with his duty as an apostle, as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel. No one would ever understand Paul unless they understood that he was a preacher first. But the way that he puts it in verse 11, I think, highlights his intention. Notice it again. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. This was at the heart of his prayers for the Romans. He wanted to be, let me just put it to you really simple. He wanted to be a spiritual blessing to them in order to strengthen them. That's what Paul's saying. Now, some commentators, and I'm not going to delve into this in any sort of detail, but they take this term spiritual gift, and really it's the word gift, uh, it's the, the Greek word that translates charisma, and they believe that there was something lacking in the church at Rome. You remember I told you last week that most commentators believe that an apostle did not establish the church in Rome. That leads some commentators to believe that when Paul says, I want to impart to you some sort of spiritual gift, 
that Paul was going to go to Rome and, and he was going to sort of supervise by laying on of the hands these miraculous spiritual gifts that, for example, the Corinthians loved to have. And really that all the other churches had prophesying and exhortation and healing and all of these things. Acts 8.17 says that the apostles laid their hands on Christians and they received the Holy Spirit. That means they received signs, gifts, and wonders, speaking in tongues and all of that sort of thing. The strongest argument for this, again, is the fact that Many people believe an apostle did not establish the church at Rome. So no apostle had been there. And so these gifts were meant to edify the church, as the scriptures say, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Or let all things be done for building up, Paul told the Corinthians. But the miraculous gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, for that matter, were gifts ultimately given by God through an apostle. But they weren't Paul's to impart, understand that. Paul says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Paul had no authority to impart a particular spiritual gift by sizing someone up and saying, you look like you'll be a good prophet. God make him a prophet. It's not the way that it worked. God was sovereignly, as he is today, in control of whatever gift you may have. And to the degree that you aren't content with that gift, your problem is with God. To the degree that you don't use that gift, your problem will be with God. But it is sovereign God that gives these gifts. Ephesians 4.11, and he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers... Jesus Christ ordained those gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So I don't think, going back to what I just said a few moments ago, that the spiritual thing, gift that Paul wants to impart to strengthen them, I don't think it has anything to do with miraculous spiritual gifts. I think Paul is referring to himself. He's an apostle, He's a teacher, he's a preacher. The exhortation that he would give, notice the end of verse 11, to strengthen the Roman church. That, that's what he's saying. Paul intended to strengthen them, not to establish them with more gifts. They were already an established church that had all sorts of spiritual gifts. But Paul could go to them and edify them. He could build them up in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. He could preach to them. He could teach them more about the deep theology that he unpacks in this letter, expounding on it. He, he could preach to them gospel-centered sermons to provide comfort and boldness for their witness in Christ, of, for Christ in the midst of persecution. He could pray for them and with them. He could guide them on important matters of church unity once he had boots on the ground and he understood what he was up against in this Jewish-Gentile sort of friction that was going on. He could disciple men and leaders in the church to be elders and deacons. The list could go on, but the spiritual gift that he could impart to them was that he would be there with them. And hopefully it would produce some level of spiritual fruit, Galatians 5. On one occasion, Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians, and he says that, I sent him to establish and exhort you in the faith. That is to build you up. So Paul's intention at a specific built-in aim, and listen carefully on this, 
Whatever it is that you're called to do for the Lord, whatever your spiritual gift, whatever your intention is to serve the Lord, it will be marked by this. I'm going to borrow Paul's words to the Ephesians. He wrote to them that all the church might grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. In other words, your intention in serving God needs to be motivated by building up and serving others. And giving glory to God, because notice again verse 11 to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. It's in the passive voice, meaning that Paul understood God was the one doing it. Paul was merely the tool in God's hand. If God wanted to use him, fine, Paul would go. Now, I think this is practically helpful in determining how to serve sincerely and effectively. Let me ask you another question, put another way. Are you motivated by a well-intended desire to serve and to help others. We're going to look at this in more detail in a moment, but I want us to stop for a minute to say this. It begins and ends with motives. Just as Paul longed to see the Romans, a desire to serve them, as he says, to strengthen them, he did it because he wanted to ensure that whatever service or ministry he did was marked by three things. Number one, is it profitable? Does it equip? Ephesians 4.12, does it build up the body of Christ? Is it a profitable service? So when you're considering how to serve the Lord, ask the question, is what I want to do profitable? Secondly, is it available? Is there a need for this service or ministry? What if someone else is already doing it? Am I going to help them or hinder them or compete with them? Romans 15, 20, Paul wanted to wait until he got to Rome to see how he could be a blessing because he was desirous and aware of the fact lest he build on someone else's foundation, Romans 15, 20. So is your intended desire to serve profitable? Is it available? Is there a need for it? And number three, is it attainable? In other words, are you personally equipped to serve in that capacity? There are many people that have wonderful desires. They just don't have gifts to be able to accomplish it. And there are other people who have many gifts and they're just not willing to use it. They're capable, but they refuse to use it. Paul says this, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be, Paul says? And it is that there are many parts Yet one body, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And of course, Paul's answer is no. Everyone's given a particular gift. But so often, we don't want to serve in areas God has made us for. We want to serve in other areas, such as well articulated in another poem. This one's a little cuter than the last one. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Real service is what I desire. I'll sing you a solo anytime, dear Lord. Just don't ask me to sing in the choir. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I like to see things come to pass, but don't ask me to teach the boys and girls, oh Lord. I'd rather just stay in my Sunday school class. 
I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I yearn for the kingdom to thrive. I'll give you my nickels and dimes, dear Lord, but please don't ask me to tithe. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll busy myself for you, dear Lord, but I'm busy just now with myself, dear Lord, and I'll help you some other day. But surprisingly, our purpose in serving God not only needs to have a well-intended service to others, but a well-intended service from others. I love this. This is beautiful. In verse 12, Paul goes on to continue to explain his desire to come to come to them and strengthen them. He says, that is, by way of explanation, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And when Paul traveled to Rome, he expected it to be a two-way street of ministry interaction. This is not a one-way street. And Paul states that the encouragement and edification would be mutual. That is, that we may mutually be encouraged, as he says, and that verb mutually encouraged translates one Greek word, sum parakaleo, which literally means to comfort. And so the means of mutual comforting encouragement would be, as he says here in the verse, the Romans' faith together with Paul's, as he says, both yours and mine. In other words, because Paul and the Romans had the same faith in Christ, they were joined at the hip in one body with Christ as the head, and so their differing gifts provided a context for mutual edification. Paul is making a great admittance here. He's saying that his effectiveness in ministry is tied to the ability of the Romans to encourage him. To be able to experience in-body life. That the Romans, this is essentially what he's saying, were like a lifeline to keep him afloat in the turbulent ministry waters. Because I've got Jews on my back trying to kill me. And you're complaining because I didn't visit you on your schedule. Paul's saying, look, when I come to you, I want to serve you, but I I want to be served. And I think this is more than just the general and transcendent principle of encouragement flowing from healthy body life. I think this is the special and tangible expression of encouragement for Paul to be financially supported for his mission trip to Spain. I, I think that's ultimately what he's talking about. We've mentioned this multiple times, but we've yet to really look at it. Turn with me to chapter 15 just quickly in verse 23, Paul mentions it. He says, uh, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So I want to enjoy your company. I want to be ministered to, but I want you to help me on this mission trip to Spain. Verse 32, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That is amazing to me that the Apostle Paul would say, please minister to my soul. What a humbling thing for the great Apostle to say. R.C. Sproul says in his commentary, every pastor needs encouragement. So often the work of the pastor in our day is an exercise in discouragement. The pastor is fair game for all criticism, and every Sunday afternoon people have roast pastor for dinner. When a pastor stands at the door at the end of the service and speaks to 50 people, 49 will say, thank you, pastor, for bringing the word of God to us today. It ministered to me. I appreciate the message. However, there is one who says, I cannot believe that awful sermon you preached this morning. And when the pastor goes home, Sproul says, he's going to remember the 49 words of encouragement. 
but he's going to mostly remember the one word of discouragement. And he goes on to say, if pastors are like me, that one remark will eat away at them for the rest of the day. That is why pastors need encouraged. Now, I don't believe pastors should fish for compliments or resort to flattery, but I do think they need to be encouraged. Let me give you some alarming stats. 38% of pastors have at least thought about quitting the ministry. More than 1,700 pastors leave the ministry every month. As of March 2022, 42% of pastors began considering leaving the ministry, rising from the 38%, which means it's only rising more and more. Here are some of the reasons. Loneliness, stress, negative impact on one's family, 29%. Vision for the church conflicting with others who think they have a better idea, 29%. Those that felt called to another profession outside the ministry, 10%. Current political divisions, 38%. It's amazing. Too many pastors aren't being lost on the front lines. They're being lost in the trenches of the church. I know many of them personally, and I would say there's a pastoral pandemic. But Paul's desire... To be ministered to, this is biblical, this is humble. Calvin says, note what degree of modesty his godly heart admitted so that he did not disdain to seek confirmation from inexperienced beginners. He means what he says too, for there is no one so void of the gifts of the, uh, of the gifts in the church of Christ who is unable to contribute something to our benefit. Ill will and pride, however, prevent our deriving such fruit from one another. In other words, Calvin's saying, Every person, even pastors, need to be ministered to and ought to be humble enough to sit under the ministry of others. Paul was humble. He considered himself a normal member of Christ's body. When he wrote 1 Corinthians 11 and he spoke about the body of Christ, he was including himself in that. Just another member. And he knew that God comforts us through others. 2 Thessalonians 2.17 Comfort will establish us in every good work and word. The comfort of the saints. The encouragement of God's people. Well, this takes us to the final point. Ministry matters because there are four matters that need to be considered. If we desire to serve sincerely and effectively, it will mean that we focus on this matter of appreciation. Do you have praise of God in your heart? Supplication, prayer to God. Intention, purpose for God. But fourth, execution, path by God. In other words, a God-rooted appreciation, praise of God, and a God-focused supplication, prayer to God, and a God-motivated intention, purpose for God needs to lead and will lead to a god orchestrated execution, passed by God. Paul helps us here by reminding us in verse 13 that serving others is contingent upon the sovereign will of God, and we need to recognize that. Two questions we should ask about potential ministry service opportunities. Number one, what is natural? Has God opened doors, clear direction? Number two, what is effectual? The first question, verse 13a, what is natural? Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I mean, Paul's already said that God had shut a door to ministry to the Romans earlier. He had prayed about it. God had hindered him. He had longed for it. Verse 11, 
He'd even made plans for a visit. He wrote it on his calendar, but God kept shutting the door. And so now he tells them, there are other pressing demands. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented. This is providential prevention. Notice he appeals to them as family, brothers. Do you realize that Paul uses that term 100 times in his epistles? 14 times alone in the book of Romans. He's appealing to his family. He's saying, I want you to understand my heart. He both desired and planned a trip there. Often I intended to come to you, but he explains thus far I've been prevented. Now, we don't, he doesn't say specifically the circumstances as to why, but I think what he's saying is he was tied up in other matters along the eastern Mediterranean. Because he says in chapter 15, verse 22, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, he had fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What is clear, however, is this is providential prevention. Let me put it to you simply, God sometimes opens doors and he sometimes shuts doors. And that's not some little cute quote that you get from chicken soup for the soul. That's biblical. Acts 16, 7, when they had come up to Mysa, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow them to go. Or you just trace Paul's ministry. God was constantly opening and shutting doors. Paul says, uh, or the book of Acts tells us that there were many times they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysa, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urgently saying to him, come over to Macedonia to help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, not those other places. For the time being. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul speaks of God opening a wide door for effective service, as the Nasby says, or work for the gospel. How, how God does this, I don't know. Don't ask me that. This is mysterious. But you will see God's sovereign hand on your life. I've told this story many of times. We moved to eastern Kentucky from West Virginia to pastor a church located on a tall mountain in uh, eastern Kentucky on the West Virginia state line some of the sweetest people I've ever met. It was a wonderful time of ministry, um, loving people, encouraging people. And I remember sitting in my office all alone and at the church. And uh, I had my commentaries laid out. I was preparing a sermon, trying to be faithful. And I lifted my head up and I had a very strong sense that I would not be in that church that long. That the Lord would take me away and I had no clue why the Lord would want to do that because it was such a sweet place of fellowship well I later learned the Lord wanted to bring me to Florida pastor another church only to leave that church to start this church and now I'll be 42 years old next month I look back on my life and I can see the sovereign fingerprints of God at the moment why God at the moment what are you doing God but if you walk with God and you are in touch with His sovereign hand upon your life, you're going to be able to see that God will do things in your life to prepare you for what He ultimately wants to use you for. And when you get to that place, there will be a settled satisfaction and gratification and jumping two feet in and what God has called you to do. Here's the point. Opportunities, though supernatural and sovereign in origin, 
from our perspective, are natural and simple. Has God opened a door for you to serve someone? If he has, then you should walk through it. Has uh, God provided a natural service in accordance with your gifts and abilities or, or resources become open to you? Then walk through that door. But if it's not natural, then take that as a sovereign sign that God's telling you to do something else. Where God guides, God provides, and whom God chooses, he always uses. So ask what is natural. Secondly, if you want to execute and follow the path of God in service, you need to ask not only what is natural, but secondly, what is effectual. Don't forget the language of 1 Corinthians 16, 9. God opened a wide door of effective service, Paul says. But here Paul states his reason for believing it would be profitable to visit Rome. He says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, I believe very firmly here that that phrase, um, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, I think he's speaking to the Christians, so I think he's speaking about some sort of edification ministry, preaching, teaching, exhorting, discipling, something in the church. But every valuable ministry will not only involve edification ministry, but also evangelism ministry. And that's what that next phrase means when he speaks about a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. All ministry has that two-pronged approach, evangelism and edification. Outside the church, inside the church. All spheres of life have that. You may have Christians you work with in that sphere, but you also have people who are non-Christians. You are to evangelize, you are to build up. In your covenant household, you might be trying to ascertain whether or not your child is a true believer. In that sense, you give them the gospel. You evangelize them. But when they're a little bit older and you can tell they're a Christian, you edify them. Evangelism, edification. Paul had an obligation to all Gentiles, not just the Romans. But he leveraged his effectiveness since more conversions in Rome would actually lead to the growth and strength of the church, a greater harvest that Paul says he would reap. I mean, Paul was just sowing the gospel seed. He was available and it was attainable if God would lead him on his path to Rome. By the way, Paul did have God's path for him made clear. Paul made it to Rome, but not to visit the church. Paul went to Rome, not to visit the church, but to be a prisoner of the state and to be executed. He never visited the church. and Therefore, he never went to Spain either Paul's writing about that here I want to go to Spain I want to go to Spain if it be the Lord's will I want to come see you in Rome none of it ended up being the Lord's will what ended up being the Lord's will was for God to shut the door in every single area of his life and to close the book on his life and to say you are done in your service to me what a way to go out to have God shut the book because you are subjected to the will of God To finish that poem I quoted at the very beginning. At last the day was ended and my toil was over and done. My house was swept and garnished and I watched in the dark alone. Watched but no footfall sounded. No one paused at my gate. No one entered my cottage door. I could only pray and wait. I waited till night had deepened and the master had not come. He entered some other door, I said, and gladdened some other home. My labor had been for nothing, and I bowed my head and I wept. My heart was sore with longing, yet in spite of it all, I slept. Then the master stood before me, and his face was grave and fair. Three times today I came to your door, 
and I craved your pity and care. Three times you sent me onward unhelped and uncomforted, and the blessing you might have had was lost, and your chance to serve has fled. O Lord, dear Lord, forgive me. How could I know it was Thee? My very soul was shamed and bowed in the depths of humility. And He said, The sin is pardoned, but the blessing is lost to Thee. For comforting not the least of mine, You have failed to comfort me. God-rooted appreciation, praise of God. God-focused supplication, prayer to God. God-motivated intention, purpose for God. And God-orchestrated execution, path by God. These are the matters of ministry, to have a ministry that matters. And every Christian is called to that task. Tonight, I want you to come back because we're going to look at Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, we have a blueprint for what God has given us so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. What role do you play in that? What role is God calling you to? He's all calling us to some role. We're going to seek His Word to find that out. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.